Well, happy Easter, everyone. Death has been defeated. All God's people said, amen. You know, the Gospel of Matthew records an angel said when the disciples appeared at the empty tomb on that first Easter morning, the angel said, he is not here, he is risen, just like he said. Praise be to God, praise be to God for the resurrection of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, I want, I want you to turn to Romans chapter six. You know, Easter is a big deal. Easter and the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest news in the history of the world. It is a total game changer. And here's why Easter and the resurrection is so big. Christianity is not simply just based on the resurrection. Christianity is the resurrection. And so the resurrection is not just our, the foundation of our hope in new heaven and new earth, but the resurrection is new heaven and new earth. And so the resurrection of Jesus is a big deal. Everything rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. And so today we're gonna to be looking at Romans chapter six, but before we get there, I wanna set it up this way. The Apostle Paul in, in Romans chapters one through five explains that, that the resurrection of Jesus proved two things to him that he had not always accepted. The first thing that it proved is the resurrection proved that Jesus was who he said he was. Look at what Paul says in Romans 1.4. He says this, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit by the resurrection from the dead. And so what Paul is saying is the resurrection didn't make Jesus the Son of God. It just proved that he was the Son of God. And then secondly, in Romans 4.25, the Apostle Paul says that, that the resurrection proves that uh, Jesus accomplished what he, has, what he said he accomplished. Look at Romans 4.25. He says, Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and he was raised for our justification. You see, the reason why the resurrection is such a big deal is because the resurrection is proof that the payment Jesus made on our behalf on Good Friday was received by God the Father and the debt was paid in full. What that really means is this, that the resurrection of Jesus was the receipt. The resurrection is proof of purchase. It, it means that, that the proof of God's exclusive claim on your life and on mine is the resurrection of Jesus. And so the bottom line is this, that Jesus was who he said he was, and he accomplished what he said he was gonna accomplish. Now here is really what is interesting uh, about those two things. There was a time in Paul's life when he didn't believe those two truths. In fact, there was a time in his life when he was vehemently opposed to those two truths. Paul spent a lot of time hunting down and arresting, and in some cases, executing anyone who proclaimed those two truths or just simply believed in those truths. But one day, as he was traveling on the road to Damascus, something significant happened in the life of the Apostle Paul. Something happened in a big way that changed his life. And so, and so you can read about it in Acts, in Acts chapter nine, but I think the question really is this, what was it that changed Paul's life? What was the cause of his, of his transformation? I think really the answer is this, he experienced the risen Christ. He experienced the power 
of the resurrection. I think sometimes as Christians, we really underestimate how incredible Paul's conversion to Christianity really was. I think we don't understand the significance of it sometimes. It really is like this. It is what happened in Acts chapter 9 is the greatest opponent to the Christian faith in the first century becomes, in just a matter of about 10 minutes, Christianity's greatest proponent. Now, you just think about that. When Paul embraced the gospel of Jesus, it meant a radical change in his life. He, he resigned his position in Judaism as a Pharisee. He gave up the power of that and the prestige of that, voluntarily walking away from it and embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, embraced a life of poverty and persecution where he was subjected to countless arrests and beatings and stonings and slanderings in his life. In fact, he spent, he spent more of his life behind bars than he did, than he did free. In fact, he was beheaded for his faith in Christ. Now that is, that is nothing short of incredible. I think when you, when you consider what would be a modern day equivalent to that, I, I, think, I think it would be like, it would be like uh, Kim Jong-un, the, the dictator of North Korea. It would be like him resigning his position and becoming a pastor of a church in South Korea. That's, that's how big of a change this really was. It would be like, it would be like Hillary Clinton becoming uh, Donald Trump's campaign chairperson for 2020. Uh, it would be like Tom Brady moving to Indy and being the Colts quarterback. That's how big of a change this was in Paul embracing the gospel. And I think the question really is, is why was there such a huge change in his life? And I think the answer really is the resurrection of Jesus, that Paul experienced the power of Jesus in life in such a way that it turned his life upside down. And it's really that change that I wanna talk about today that really applies to you and to me. So we're gonna read Romans 6 verses one through 11. And hear what the apostle Paul says. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. And we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, 
What the Apostle Paul does leading up to chapter six is he's really just unpacking our dire need for a savior. Paul explains in those early chapters that we are lawbreakers in need of a savior and that there's really nothing we can do to save ourselves. And so Paul's point is that salvation is really received, not achieved. That salvation is a gift, is a gift from God. And so in chapter six, Paul begins to anticipate a question that, uh, that, might be, that might be thought up in the mind of his readers. And the question is this, if salvation is received and not achieved, then why shouldn't we just live however we wanna live? In other words, in other words, if the grace of God is good and we did nothing to earn the grace of God, should we go on sinning so that we can have even more of the grace of God in our lives? I think another way of asking it would be like this. Why should we even change at all? And how should we change? I think ultimately that is the question that is being raised. And Paul's answer to that question is very simply the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus marks a profound change in the life of every single believer. And it's not a matter of just dying and after dying you go to heaven. It is, it is more life altering and more life changing than that. You see, Easter marks a profound and comprehensive change that, that occurs in us long before we even die physically. And that's what the Apostle Paul explains in this passage. And so, if, you, if you've ever struggled with sin as a Christian in your own life, if you've ever grieved over how your sinful choices have negatively impacted someone else, if you've ever longed to be free from an addiction or a life-dominating sin, if you've ever desired to have joy and peace in the Holy Spirit, then what Paul says in Romans 6 is exactly for you. You see, I think what we see in Romans 6 are two great truths that Paul is really trying to help us understand as we kind of think through this change. The first change that he wants us to see is that because of the resurrection of Jesus, I am unified with Christ. I am unified with Christ. And then secondly, because of the resurrection, I am, I am identified in Christ. So that's what I want us to look at today. My, my unity in Christ, my new identity in Christ, and then how to live out that new identity. So let's look at the first one. I am unified with Christ because of the resurrection of Jesus. So in order for us to grow and change, we, we must begin to grasp this incredible unity that we have with the Savior. We begin, look with me at verse one, and I wanna show you exactly how Paul explains this. He says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul responds by saying, by no means. Now this is, a, this is really an interesting question and the question's kind of phrased like this, we've kind of already talked about it, but basically, basically the question's like this, if Jesus paid it all, uh, isn't it like now we have a divine visa card in our hand with an unlimited account? So we can just kind of live however we wanna live. We can just dip into that account anytime we need it and just live however we like. That's in essence the question that Paul's anticipating. And his answer is this, by no means. In, in other words, in the Greek, it is basically Paul's way of saying, 
Heck no, absolutely not. And the reason why is because of our unity with Christ. Our unity in Christ has brought such a change that we can't continue to live in sin anymore. That's what Paul's point is. Let me show you this in verses three and in verses five. Notice what the apostle Paul says. He says, we were, there, we were, we were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. And then you see in verse five, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, what he's talking about here is he's, he's really talking about our unity. And he begins to describe this unity in terms of baptism. And he's talking about the baptized. He's talking about every single Christian. And he's saying that this is true of every single Christian. And he uses this illustration of baptism. And so baptism really is like a wedding, it's like a wedding ring. And when you, uh, in a wedding ceremony, you put on that wedding ring, it is a symbol of God joining a man and a woman together, the two becoming one. They become united together. They become joined together as one. And so in the Christian life, really the wedding ring of the Christian is baptism. Because when a person is baptized, it is an outward symbol of their unity in Christ. And that is the exact picture that Paul wants us to see. It's what he's alluding to here, that the moment you came to faith in Christ, you were joined with Christ. You were united with him. That's what verse five says. In fact, that word united in verse five is a horticultural word. And it literally means you've been grafted into the root of Christ. So another way of saying it would be like this, that you haven't been duct taped to Jesus. You haven't been super glued to Jesus. You have been inserted into the very roots of who Jesus is. And so that is the, that's the significance of our unity in Christ. Now, what does that mean practically? Well, I think what it, means, what it means for us practically is this, that by grace through faith, that when Jesus died, we died with him. And that by grace through faith, when Jesus rose, we rose with him. In other words, Christ's past becomes our past and Christ's future becomes our future. That is what unity in Christ means. And so the implications of this are, are absolutely jaw-dropping when you think about it. I, I think the first implication you could kind of think about as you, as you consider that Christ's past becomes our past is really this, that our sinful past is now completely gone. That if you are in Christ by grace through faith, your past has been completely wiped out. Your sinful past has been completely destroyed. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. So the picture is, again, like baptism. So when we lower someone in the waters of baptism, we're lowering them like we would lower someone into a casket. And so when we, when we lower someone into a casket, it really means that the person we're lowering into that casket is dead. And that's what, when a person leans back in the waters of baptism, it really is that their old way of life has died in every way. 
So that means every sin in your past, lust and greed and pride and selfishness and worry and anger and bitterness and rage and all the others, all of that has been completely wiped out. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying as a result of our unity with Christ. Christ Christ's past becomes, becomes ours. Now, let's think about this a little bit further because the news gets even greater. Not only is our past gone, but think about it, church. We receive Christ's past into our life. We actually receive his past is imputed into ours, if you will. And so the question then becomes, well, what was in Christ's past? Well, righteousness and perfect obedience and flawless character. In other words, what is true of Christ becomes true of us. What a glorious true truth. And all of that is a result of our unity with Christ. Paul describes this unity that we have in Jesus in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, he writes about it and he says this in verse 1. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth, for you have died, he says, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, what he says in that passage are three things that really describe your unity and my unity with Christ. That we have died with him, we have been raised with him, and now we are seated with him. That is what he is saying. That is the reality of our union, our union and unity uh, with Christ. Now, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine the most, uh, the wealthiest person in the world, the richest person in the world. This person is extravagantly rich. And how did this person become so extravagantly rich? Well, through, the, through their own brilliance and diligence and hard work and and uh, wise decision-making, that's how they became rich. They, they earned it, they worked for it. And so, and so when that rich person, whoever he or she might be, gets married, then, then what happens to that person's wealth? How is it transferred to the new spouse? Well, the answer is very simple. It's uh, totally by grace. It is, it is transferred by legal union with Christ. And so one spouse did all the work and earned it all, and the other spouse simply received it by grace. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage is when you gave your life to Christ, when, when you came to Christ, you received all the riches of Jesus Christ. You received them. And it means very simply, that you, your spouse, your true spouse, is the richest person in the world. His name is Jesus. And not only do you have his riches, but you also have his position. Because Paul says you've been seated with Christ at the right hand of God the Father. Now, think about that position at the right hand of God the Father. That is the highest position in the world. There's, there's, no, there's no other position higher than that. And the Apostle Paul says that by virtue of Christ's obedience, by virtue of his flawless character and his sin, sinless life, you have not only received the riches of Christ, you have been placed with Christ 
at the right hand of God the Father. So in essence, really what this text is saying is that everything Jesus accomplished is also now true of you because of your union with him. That when the heavenly Father looks at his son Jesus, the Father delights in him. The Father dotes over him. And that's exactly what the Father does when he sees you. He delights in you. He dotes over you. Why? Because now you're in Christ. You have been unified with Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is really trying to say. And so we have this absolute connection with, with Jesus' past, but I want you to think about a second implication. We have an absolute connection with Jesus' future. And I want you to think about this. What is in Jesus' future right now? What's in his future? Well, what's in his future is new heaven and new earth. That's his future. And, and how are you and I going to see this new heaven and new earth? Well, we're going to see it at the second coming of Jesus. You see, the second coming of Jesus is the inauguration, if you will, of the new heaven and new earth. And something significant, something profoundly uh, occurs at the second coming of Jesus. And do you know what that is? It's the resurrection, the resurrection of, of those in Christ. Now, here's, here's what I wanna share with you that's gonna happen on the day that Jesus returns. And I want you to listen carefully to this because this is, this is absolutely huge. This is, this, this is the inauguration, if you will, of new heaven and new earth. One day, you're gonna die and they're gonna put your body in the ground. And so your body is going to be in the ground, but your soul, your spirit is going to be with Jesus. Now, how do we know that? Well, the Bible says very clearly, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so your body is going to be in the ground, but your soul is going to be with Jesus. And so guess what happens at the second coming of Jesus? The Bible tells us that the trumpet is gonna sound and the dead in Christ will rise. What that means is this, your body is gonna rise up out of that cemetery. It's gonna be transformed into a glorified body and you're going to be reunited with it, with Jesus in the air. That is absolutely amazing when you think about it. Now, those who are on the earth, at Jesus' second coming, they're just going to arise and meet Jesus in the air and come back down with him as he sets up his reign on the earth. And so really the question is, what is that? That is new heaven and new earth. That is the inauguration of the renewal of all things. And what I want you to see church is that is your future. You have been united with Christ's past and you have been united with Christ's future. And that is called the renewal of all things. And so the way that we characterize that is no more tears, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more disaster, no more sin, no more Satan. The old order has passed away and Jesus will make all things new. There's an interesting passage where Jesus talks about this. It's Matthew 19, 28. And this is, this is where Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, do you see that phrase, the new world? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about new heaven and new earth. This is a picture of where all of human history is moving toward right now. This is where God is taking us. This is where the ship is going. This is where the train is, is, this is where the train is going. And this is where our heavenly father is gonna take us. And so what I want you to see is this, this is your future. And so this is where God is taking you as a believer in Christ. So another way of saying it would be this, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's going to renew all of creation, which is the same power that lives in you, in your heart right now, if you're a Christian. What a glorious truth that is. It is absolutely mind-boggling when you really consider those implications. Basically what this means is this, that becoming a Christian is not simply a get out of jail card. It is, it is part of becoming a part of the renewal of all things. That's what it is, a complete change. So the reason why you and I can't live in sin anymore is because that same power lives and dwells within us and that frees us from that sin. So really the key to growth and change in the Christian life is realizing where God is taking us, where he is leading us to, and that is new heaven and new earth. And uh, the question then becomes, well, what do we need to do in response to this? Well, I think C.S. Lewis has a great answer to that. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says this, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did most in the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christ Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this world. And so as a result of our union with Christ, the fact that we're, we've been united with his past and we're united with his, with his future, by virtue of that, we can join God in his work in the world by serving, by praying, by giving, by worshiping, by sharing, by loving, by doing all of those things that really mark this huge change in our life. And so that is what Paul is saying when he says we have been united with Christ. But there's another key part of this whole uh, growth and change process that's essential if we're gonna be who Christ wants us to be. And it's not only realizing that we have been unified with Christ, but it's secondly also realizing that I'm identified in Christ. You see, to grasp this great work of salvation in us, to grow and to change, we need to understand our unity with Christ, but we also need to understand our new identity in Christ. Let me share with you what I mean by this. It's, it's in Romans 6, 4, look, look at verse four with me, where the apostle Paul says this, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. That phrase, newness of life, is absolutely key. What he's talking about is this. He's talking about that because we're in Christ, by grace through faith, we've been given a whole new identity. We are, 
we have been free to walk in a completely new life. In fact, I would say it this way, unity with Christ leads to a new identity in Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. Now you see this identity formation in the, in the Gospels and in the New Testament especially, you see Jesus working this new identity in the disciples. You see, for example, when Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, which means rock. Uh, Peter was anything but a rock at that time. But what Jesus was doing was forming his identity in himself. And that's what he does in you and in me. And that's why Saul became the Apostle Paul at his conversion, to mark this new identity and this new change. The old is gone and new life has come. Now the question then becomes, well, what's really the secret of walking in this, in this new identity? Well, I think he tells us in verse 11 where the Apostle Paul says this, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is, what he's really saying here is this, that by virtue of your union with, your, with Christ and your new identity in Christ, you're now dead to sin. So you need to see yourself as dead to sin. You need to treat yourself as dead to sin. That's what he's talking about here in verse, in verse 11. Now, I think the question needs to be looked at and answered, well, how are we just specifically dead to sin? Well, I think there are a couple of, different, couple of ways that we're dead to sin. I think the first way that, that we become dead to sin is really through repentance. Repentance just simply means a 180 degree turn. We were heading one way and now we're going the complete opposite direction. It really means an about face, a complete change of mind and a complete change of heart. That's what repentance really is. And so how do you become a Christian? Well, you repent of your sins and you believe the gospel. And so repentance is a crucial step in becoming a Christian. And sometimes I run into people that think that all they need to do is just pray a simple prayer and that makes them a Christian. And then some people think all they have to do is just believe in Jesus and that makes them a Christian. When in reality, even the demons believe in Jesus. Some people think all they need to do is go to church and that makes them a Christian, just simple church attendance. Well, here's what I would say to that, that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to Krispy Kreme makes you a donut. You see, the reality is conversion begins in repentance. Now, repentance doesn't mean you've, you've been made perfect, um, but it does, it does mean that there's been a change in how you live your life. In fact, I would say this, that repentance doesn't mark perfection, but what it really does is mark progress in your relationship with God. There's a sense in which as Christians, we're gonna be repenting the rest of our lives. That's what it means to really grow and change in Him. So that's how, that's how first of all, we're dead to sin, just through repentance. But there's another way that we're dead to sin, and that is through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And what the power of the Holy Spirit does is he breaks the power of sin in us. In other words, the reign of sin, the rule of sin that characterized our life before we came to Christ is now over. Sin is still in us, 
but it no longer has to rule over us. Why? Because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus that is living inside of us. And so that really repentance and then the power of the Holy Spirit working together really helps to solidify our identity in Christ. And so if you fail to live the way Jesus wants you to live, if you, if you fall into sin, if you, if you fail in some way in your Christian walk, it really has to do with just simply forgetting who you are in Christ, that you've forgotten your identity in Him. And so the key to growth and change is remembering your identity in him. You know, there's a story about Augustine. Augustine was one of the greatest theologians uh, in the history of the church. And before he became a Christian, he was very sexually promiscuous. And so uh, one day he was walking along and one of his mistresses came up to him and started making advances toward him. And he very politely and very gently said to her, no, thank you. And Augustine says her, her name was Claudia. And so she continued to make advances towards him and, and he said, no, thank you, and just kept walking. And, and she thought to herself, Claudia did, she thought, well, maybe he doesn't recognize me. And so she yelled out to him, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And Augustine turned and looked back at Claudia and said, but it's not I, it's not I. It's no longer Augustine. You see, what Augustine was really saying in that moment is this, that what characterized his life for so long was using women for his own pleasure. And so what he's saying here is this, that old way of life is gone and he has been made new. He has a new master in, in Jesus Christ. And so that's what it means to walk in our new identity. Now, the question then becomes, well, how do, you, how do you live this out? How do you walk just very practically in this new identity in Christ? Let me just very quickly give you three ways. I think, I think walking in this new identity means this, that, that you're baptized. To walk in your identity starts with your baptism, which is really why you need to be baptized if you haven't been. Baptism marks your union with Christ's death and your union with his resurrection. And so it marks that you are a believer. And so the first Sunday that we're back at church, we are gonna celebrate. And that's gonna be a day where we're gonna see a lot of people be baptized. So if you haven't been baptized, you need to go to our website and, and sign up today for that first Sunday that we're back because it's gonna be a glorious celebration. So one way to walk in this new identity is to be baptized. But secondly, one way to walk in this new identity is just through attending family gatherings. You see, because of your new unity with Christ and your new identity in Christ, that means that you're now brothers and sisters with every other Christian. You've been given a new family. And so you need to spend time with your new family members because it's in spending time with your new family that you are reminded who you are in relationship to God. Now, I'm so thankful we can, we can you know, connect virtually and online, that we can worship uh, through technology, but make no mistake about it, virtual worship is no replacement for the real thing. Because when the people of God assemble together, the Bible says that God is present with them in a way, in a special way that he's not present 
when we're just sitting on our couches. And so something supernatural happens when the people of God gather together. And what a glorious day it'll be when we, when we gather together. So, so, to, so to live out this new identity, you need to be a part of all family gatherings. And then lastly, you need to read and meditate on the Word of God. We don't need to read and study and meditate on the Word of God to earn God's approval. We already have God's approval if we're in Christ. You see, you read and study and meditate on the Word of God to be reminded that you already have God's approval. That is great news. And so I wanna encourage you to be a student of the Word and dive into what the Word of God says about your new identity in Christ. So going back to my first question, what happened to the Apostle Paul? I think, the, I think what transformed his life was he realized his union with Christ and his new identity with Christ. And that's the same thing that brings, brings change to you and me, walking in that unity and in that identity. Now, one last question. What if, what if you've never, you're not a Christian? What if you're watching online right now and you know you haven't been united with Christ and you haven't, you haven't received this new identity in Christ? How would you do that? Very simple. You just repent of your sins and you believe the gospel. You turn away from sin and you turn to Christ. And you trust that when Jesus died, he died in your place for your sins. And you simply ask him into your life. You ask him to come into your life. You pledge yourself to him. You ask him to forgive your sins and to give you this unity and new identity. It's as simple as asking and praying and receiving. Why don't we do that right now? Would you bow your heads with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you that it is received and not achieved. And so God, we confess that we are sinners, that we have, that we have turned our backs against you. And so our prayer is that you would come into our lives and forgive us of our sins, that you would help us to realize our union with you and our identity in you. And God, put your spirit in us that we may walk in newness of life. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer for the very first time today, I want you to do something. I want you to tell someone. And I would like for you to tell me. You can email me at scott at stonescrossing.com and just let me know, today I received Christ. Today I became a Christian. I hope you have a great day and a happy Easter. God bless.